Well, this evening we come to the fourth in our series entitled Aspects of Love, where we've been looking at different ways in which the Bible speaks about God's love for us. We've already looked at redemption, at regeneration, and at justification. And this week we come to the topic of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now, the Bible reading that we had earlier comes from one of the letters written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he himself founded in the city of Corinth. And in this letter he wrote, Paul is trying to encourage the church by reminding them of what God has done for them out of his great love. And in this passage that we read in chapter 5 of this letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about reconciliation. In fact, the word is used five times in one form or another in this passage. Perhaps you counted them, but that's more times than in any other passage in the Bible. And the reconciliation that Paul writes about is a reconciliation between God and us. A reconciliation between God and us. But exactly what kind of reconciliation is Paul talking about? Is it something like this couple experience that I just spoke about? Is it that we've had uh, sort of a big bust up with God over something relatively trivial, but all of us have been able, able to move past that now? Is that the idea? Or is it something far more profound and radical and life-changing. That's what I want us to think about this evening. What is the nature of this reconciliation between God and humans? Why was it needed anyway? How is it accomplished? And what are the implications for us? Well, I'm going to try and answer all these questions under four headings. Four headings that will be the meaning of reconciliation, the mediator of reconciliation, the means of reconciliation, and then the ministry of reconciliation. And I hope you still have your Bibles open at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because it will be important for you to have the passage in front of you as I go through it, so that you can check at least that I'm not just making this up. But let's have a word of prayer, shall we, before we continue. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us now by your Holy Spirit. Let these truths about your great love for us captivate our minds and our hearts and our wills. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, let's begin then with the meaning of reconciliation. This is a sensible place to start with the meaning of the word. In verse 18 of this chapter, Paul says that God has reconciled us to himself. Reconciled us to himself. But what does Paul mean by this word, reconciled? What exactly has happened between us and God? Well, if we want to find out the meaning of a word, there are various ways uh, we can go about it. We could think about the way that the word is used in popular conversation. When we hear that two people have been reconciled, uh, we think that they, they must have fallen out, but now they've kissed and made up, literally or metaphorically. Is, is that the idea that Paul has here? Well, sometimes we speak about uh, being becoming reconciled to something in the sense of coming to terms with it. We learn to live with it, even though the fact is we don't really like it. So is the idea here that when when God reconciled us to himself, he somehow helped us to learn to live with him, even though we don't really like him? Well, no, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about either. Perhaps a dictionary. Perhaps a dictionary can help us out here. According to the compact Oxford English Dictionary, to reconcile means to restore 
friendly relations between two people, to restore friendly relations between two people. The idea is that you have two people who are at enmity with each other, they're enemies for whatever reason, and their enmity is removed so that positive relations are restored once again. The two people are reconciled. That's a a dictionary definition. But is this the kind of reconciliation that Paul has in mind here? I mean, does Paul really believe that we were once God's enemies? Well, yes, he does. That's exactly what he thinks. And we can see that clearly from what he says about reconciliation in in another letter he wrote to to the Roman church, chapter 5 and verse 10. This is what he writes. For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? But this raises some obvious questions, doesn't it? Why were we God's enemies? What caused that enmity between us? And how did God remove the cause of that enmity so that we could be reconciled? Well, we find the answer to those questions in the second half of verse 19 of our passage. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. Paul says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Not counting our sins against us. It was our sins, our disobedience, our rebellion against God, our our failure to live lives of love towards God and towards other people. It was our sins that made us God's enemies. God is absolutely holy and absolutely just. By his very nature, he is the resolute defender of all that is good and the resolute enemy of all that is not good. And so our sinful attitudes and our sinful behaviour put enmity between us and God. And we became separated. This is how the prophet Isaiah put the point to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He wrote, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Isaiah 59 verse 2. Even the lines have been communicate, uh, even lines of communication have been broken. He will not hear. He will not even hear. There's a complete alienation here because of our sin. That's how sin, how serious sin is to a holy God. And so this enmity that there is, it wasn't something that was caused by something that, that God did. It was caused by something we did. We started the war. But it is God who has brought about reconciliation. And the meaning of this reconciliation, Paul says, consists in God not counting our sins against us. In effect, God treats us as if we had never sinned. And so the cause of that enmity between us is removed. You can only be God's friend rather than God's enemy if there is no sin to come between you. But how can God not count our sin against us? How can he do that? After all, there's no denying that we have sinned. Nothing can change that. No one can change the past. So does God just brush things under the carpet? Does he just turn a blind eye to our wrongdoings like some kind of corrupt government official? No, that's not God's way at all. But before we look at how God accomplished this incredible reconciliation... Let's first consider 
whom he sent to bring about the reconciliation. Where reconciliation is needed between two parties, whether that's two individuals or two groups, often a mediator is needed. A mediator is needed in order to bring the two parties together. The word mediator itself comes from the Latin word mediatus, which literally means one who stands in the middle. It literally means one who stands in the middle. I don't know whether the, the newlyweds in my introduction needed a mediator to help them resolve their unfortunate dispute. They may well have done. Although it would have taken a brave person to be the one to stand in the middle while sharp ob- objects were being thrown about. But the reconciliation between God and human beings certainly needed a mediator. It needed someone who could stand in the middle and bridge that separation. And that mediator was Jesus Christ. Look at verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Jesus Christ was the agent of reconciliation. He was the mediator between God and us. But not just anyone can serve as a mediator. A mediator has to meet certain requirements. In particular, a mediator needs to be able to represent both parties that need to be reconciled. The mediator cannot be seen to have a unique connection with one party that disadvantages or disrespects the other party. Imagine if you were to get into a dispute with your boss about some aspect of your job and relations with him degenerated to the point at which a mediator had to be brought in to help you resolve your differences with him. I'm sure you wouldn't have much confidence in the mediation process if the company appointed a mediator who turned out to be your boss's brother-in-law and golf partner. A mediator, of course, has to be able to represent both parties. But that presents a difficulty, doesn't it? It presents a difficulty for any reconciliation between God and human beings. On the one hand, the mediator would have to be equal with God, for how can anyone less than God represent God? It would be sheer impudence for any mere human being to to represent God before other human beings. And the same would go for any other created beings, such as angels. Only God has the status and the authority to represent God to anyone else. But on the other hand, the mediator would also need to fairly represent human beings. He would have to be able to communicate at our level. He would need to have an intimate understanding of our position. He would would need to be able to see things from the inside, as it were, from our point of view. He would have to be someone we could relate to, someone we could trust. In short, he would have to be one of us, a fellow human being. The mediator would have to be equal with God, but he would also have to be one of us. And that is precisely why Jesus Christ had to be the mediator. Because only Jesus was fully God and fully human. He was and is the Son of God who existed from time eternal with God the Father, But he took on a human nature. 
body and soul, so that he could serve as the mediator in the reconciliation between a holy God and fallen human beings. I came across an article on the web this week uh, which was discussing Tony Blair's new role as an international Middle East peace envoy. Among other responsibilities, Mr. Blair will uh, try to serve as a mediator between the Israelis and the Palestinians in their long-standing and bloody uh, conflict. Now, the title of the article was a question. This is what the question was. Can Tony Blair succeed in the ultimate mediation role? Well, I'll I'll grant that uh, Mr. Blair will have a very difficult job to do. Certainly not a job that I would want. Not that anyone's offering it to me. But it isn't the ultimate mediation role by a long shot. The ultimate mediation role is to take the job of turning the enemies of Almighty God into the friends of Almighty God. And only Jesus Christ has the qualifications for that role. As Paul wrote in another of his letters, there is one God a one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the meaning of reconciliation is that the enmity between God and us is removed because God no longer counts our sins against us. And the mediator of reconciliation is Jesus Christ, the unique God-man. But how did he do it? How did Jesus do it? How did he remove the enmity between God and us? In other words, what was the means of reconciliation? Well, the answer is given by Paul in verse 21 of our passage, which I think is one of the most stunning and profound verses in the whole Bible. Verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If I can put this reverently, God faced a big problem when he planned to reconcile the world to himself. On the one hand, he is an absolutely holy, an absolutely just God who cannot tolerate sin and evil. He is committed by his own divine perfection to to punish sin and to eradicate evil. On the other hand, we are undeniably sinful and evil in our thoughts and actions, both towards God and towards one another. So how could God not count our sins against us? It would be like me uh, running up debts of thousands of pounds and then going to my bank manager for help and him telling me, well, this is no problem at all, I'll just get someone in the bank to edit the computer records Uh, so that uh, the balance of my current account is increased by the amount I owe. Now, that would be very generous, particularly for a bank manager, but it wouldn't be anything like a satisfactory solution to the problem. The debts would still need to be paid with real funds. But in this verse, verse 21, we have Paul's one-sentence summary of how God solved the problem. And the answer lies in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. What happened when Jesus died on the cross has sometimes been described as the great exchange. The great exchange on the basis of this very verse. It's an exchange because something was given to Jesus, to to Jesus from us, 
And something was given to us from Jesus. What was given to Jesus from us was the guilt for our sin. Jesus himself lived a perfect moral life. He never committed any sin, even though he experienced all the kinds of temptations that we face as human beings. But he willingly took upon himself the guilt for the sins that we committed. This is what Paul's saying here. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And because he took the guilt for our sin, he also had to take the penalty for that sin. And he bore that penalty when he suffered and died on the cross, enduring not only the physical agony of the whips and the nails, but also the far greater spiritual agony of complete alienation from his Father in heaven. In effect, he suffered the fate of God's enemies instead of us. That was the first aspect. The first aspect of the great exchange. But there was also a second aspect. What was given to us from Jesus was his righteousness, his moral perfection, his perfect scorecard in terms of obedience to God's laws of love. Look at the second half of this verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was sinless, but for our sake he was treated as the worst of all sinners in God's eyes. We are not sinless, but we are treated as sinless in God's eyes. Jesus had the righteousness of God, but it has been credited to our account. That's the great exchange. And it's an incredible, wonderful work of God. And it's the means of the the reconciliation between God and us. But why would God do this? Why would he send his own son into our world to be the mediator in our reconciliation by taking part in this great exchange? Well, the simple but life-transforming answer that the Bible gives is just this. Because God loves us. Because God loves us. As Paul put in his letter to the Romans, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And so our reconciliation to God is a wonderful expression of God's love for us. Many people who uh, don't claim to be Christians are well aware that Jesus taught his followers to love their enemies. Oh yes, Jesus, yes, I, I know that teaching of Jesus. Love your enemies. But what people often don't recognize is that Jesus' teaching was nothing less than a reflection of what God had already done. God set the supreme example and standard of love for enemies when he sent his son to die for sinners like us so that we could become his friends. So is is that all that needs to be said about our reconciliation to God? Do we just now uh, sit back and revel in the knowledge that we're reconciled? Do we say, Oh yes, yes, I'm reconciled to God. I'm no longer his enemy because of what Jesus did. I'm all sorted. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's sing one more song and go home. Well, no, we can't do that. Because that's not all God 
has done. Look again at verse 18. Look again, verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God has not only reconciled us to himself through Christ, but he has also given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, what is this? What is this ministry of reconciliation? Well, it's simply the ministry of sharing the gospel. It's the work of telling people who are alienated from God about what God has done to remove that alienation and to turn them from his enemies into his friends. Ah, but perhaps you're thinking, okay, yes, I can see that that's what the ministry of reconciliation is, but isn't Paul speaking here uh, about himself? He's speaking about his role as an apostle. And so isn't this ministry of reconciliation a very special ministry that was given to the apostles and perhaps also to others with a special gift of evangelism? This ministry of reconciliation isn't a ministry for all of us, is it? Well, I believe it is a ministry for all of us. Let me quickly show you why that is. Look again at verse 18. In the second, first, second half of this verse, Paul says that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. But who is that us? Is it Paul? Just Paul and his fellow apostles? No, it's the very same us as is in the first half of that verse. God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. The ministry of reconciliation is given to all those who have been reconciled to God. And so if you consider yourself a friend of God rather than an enemy, then God has given the ministry of reconciliation to you. The two go hand in hand. So what then does this ministry of reconciliation involve? You better listen because it applies to you. Well, I want to make just two observations here based on this passage. First, there's the message. There is a message. Verse 19. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation involves delivering a message. The message of good news. The message of peace with God through Jesus. In fact, Paul says that we are like ambassadors. Verse 20. An ambassador, of course, is someone who represents the government uh, of another country. He speaks on behalf of the king or the president of his own country when he is in another country. And he doesn't deliver his own messages. He can't just say whatever he wants. The messages are given to him. And when he delivers them, his words carry all the authority of the one who sent him. But he must speak. He cannot choose whether or not to speak. It's his job to convey the message and to convey it faithfully. I've often heard the following quotation used in sermons about the importance of living a life of love and compassion and generosity for the cause of the gospel. Have you heard this quotation? Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. Have you heard that? I think it's credited to St. Francis of Assisi. Well, I understand the sentiment, but that quotation can be very misleading. If you take it literally, 
It's only true if you recognise that it is always necessary to use words to preach the gospel. The ministry of reconciliation is primarily a speaking ministry. It necessarily involves a message that is expressed in words, whether spoken words or words written down for people. Yes, we should always show practical love and compassion for our unsafe friends, family members, work colleagues and others, but unless we deliver to them the, the message of reconciliation, we will not be engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation involves the message. And my second observation about the ministry of reconciliation concerns its motivation. Its motivation. What motivates us to pass on this message of reconciliation? Well, there are a number of things we could say, but I think Paul's answer is found in verse 14. Look at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Paul is motivated to do what he does. In fact, he says he's he's compelled to do what he does because of the love of Christ. Not his love for Christ, but the love that Christ has for him. The love that Christ has proven to him by dying for him, to reconcile him to God. And Christ has shown the very same love to each one of us if we are reconciled to God. And so we should have the very same motivation as Paul did. It's very important to see here that it is Christ's love for us that motivates us, not our love for Christ. Our love for Christ is often weak, fickle and faltering. It's not a solid foundation for anything. Rather, the solid foundation for our ministry of reconciliation is Christ's love for us, which is firm and unchanging and beyond all measure. And if we don't feel that motivation, that compulsion even, to engage in the ministry of reconciliation, then we need to return to the cross of Jesus again, to meditate on it and to recapture what it reveals to us about the love of Christ and the love of God for rebels like us. I want to finish by telling a story. It's a story set in a place not so far from here and at a time not so long ago. It's about a country ruled by a good and just and wise king. Many years ago, a great number of the population had risen up in rebellion against this king because they decided that they didn't like his rules and they wanted to run the country their way. In truth, they hadn't properly understood at all what it meant to govern well and they hadn't hadn't grasped that what seemed to some like petty restrictions were actually sensible protections. But sadly, they didn't realise any of this until it was too late. Anyway, the king quickly quelled the rebellion, but rather than immediately executing all the traitors, he banished them from the, central cities of the, uh, from the central cities of the country into the distant corners of the kingdom and warned them not to return. 
Well, the rebels, now completely alienated from the king and still unrepentant and bitter towards him, lived in constant fear of him and his forces. They moved from place to place and often struggled even to keep themselves alive, never mind to mount another coup. One particular band of rebels hid out in the barren, mountainous regions of the land. They fashioned crude weapons and braced themselves for the day when the king would come to finish them off for good. Every so often they would take their makeshift catapults and fire off a a volley of stones in the general direction of the capital city just to show that they were still up for a fight. But it was more a pathetic display of defiance than a sign of credible resistance. And in fact, while most of the group were still resolutely committed to their anti-monarchist cause, a good number of them were beginning to have serious doubts about whether that initial rebellion had been justified and sensible. But what could they do now? One bleak winter's day, a member of the group was out searching for food and firewood when he was surprised to hear the sound of hooves. He looked up to see a man on a horseback Uh, approaching him at great speed and as the rider drew near he greeted the rebel warmly and handed him a scroll with the royal seal on it. The rebel opened the scroll and read this message. The king now offers peace to all those who committed treason against him. He is willing to cancel all criminal charges against you. But more than that, he offers to prepare a place for each of you in his own palace, where you may join in his royal festivities and enjoy all his great riches. In due course, he will send a member of his own family to bring you home to the palace for good. But until then, he will send out to you regular parcels of food and clothes and other provisions as a confirmation and an anticipation of what you can expect. All you need to do is to reply to this message to signal that you now acknowledge his rule and accept his terms. Well, overcome with joy and gratitude, the rebel told the rider to inform the king immediately of his acceptance. And as the king's envoy departed, the shell-shocked man returned to rejoin his fellow rebels. And just as you might expect, He didn't tell a single soul about what had happened or share the king's message with anyone. Perhaps he was worried that they wouldn't believe him. Perhaps he feared that they would misunderstand him or ridicule him and write scrolls of their own with titles like The King Delusion and The King Is Not Great. So he decided on this safe policy If any of the other rebels were ever to ask him directly if he had heard any news about the king, if they were ever to press him about it, only then would he tell them the king's message. Occasionally his comrades would would wonder why he was looking rather better fed and clothed than the rest of them. But never did the man ever get around to telling anyone that he had made his peace with the king and that they could too. Well, that's the end of the story, for now. I think you'll agree that it's not a very satisfying story, and that the last part really stretches credibility to the limits. Would anyone really behave like that 
ungrateful, self-centered rebel. And yet we know very well from personal experience that it is credible. Because that's often been my story. And that's often been your story, I suspect. And so this passage puts a clear challenge before us. Now that we have been reconciled to God through Christ, are we ready and eager to take up the ministry of reconciliation that has also been given to us? Suppose, however, that the story had turned out rather better and that the reconciled rebel had faithfully passed on the king's offer of peace and prosperity. Imagine if some of the other rebels, after hearing this message, had simply shrugged their shoulders, grumbled in discontent, walked away and continued their pathetic lives just as before. Now that response wouldn't make a whole lot of sense either. But I still have to ask, would that be your story? Do you know in your heart of hearts that you are still a rebel at enmity with God because of your sin? Do you recognise, perhaps for the first time, that you've never truly accepted his peace offer? If so, those of us who are Christ's ambassadors have to implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He offers you peace right now. Consider how much he loves you. See how far he has been willing to go to overcome the alienation that you have with him through the death of his own son. You've received the message. All that's left is for you to respond. Be reconciled to God.